This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to be joined on Football CFB today by a man who's had a very interesting journey through football and a journey through life as well. Alan Tong played for Manchester United and Exeter City. He retired from football at a young age due to a really severe injury, which we'll discuss on the show, and has now had an incredible career in university lecturing and regular co-commentary on Manchester United and Exeter games as well. Quite the journey, Alan. Thanks for joining me. No worries, Callum. Thanks for inviting me on. The first thing I want to ask is about Manchester United. You joined the club as a schoolboy, but before we come to that, who were your football heroes growing up? Well, my football heroes growing up, it seems to be um, going back a long, long time now, Callum. Every, every birthday I'd reminds me that I'm getting older and older and, um, you know, going back into the past. I think my heroes were like, um, well, Brian Robson was one of my, my favourite players and, uh, Norman Whiteside. So, so coming through as a young schoolboy, you know, these are some of the players that you aspired to. But you know, going back even further than that, Callum, one of my favourites in the system. I don't know if, you know, depending on how how old your listeners are, was um, a lad called Michel Platini, who played in the great French sides of of the early eighties and the mid eighties. And and Platini was a fantastic footballer, very natural footballer, a good passer. You know, so I had quite a lot of sort of different components to his game. He could score goals. And one thing I admired him, I always looked silky smooth when he played. So so he was a kind of another player when when I was in the in the playgrounds and you know play cutting my teeth as a as a young, young footballer. You know, these are some of the lads that I was kind of aspiring to be and and modelled kind of, you know, some of some of the ways I played on on those lads. Being a, a Manchester United fan, how did it feel when you go into the system at Manchester United? Because every young boy's dream is to become a footballer, but to get to Manchester United at schoolboy level or first team level takes some doing. Yes, yeah, you know, like, like anything else, Callum, you know, if you've got a, a certain feel for the sport and you're decent at it and, you know, you seem to be progressing okay in it and, you know, playing for your schoolboy sides and then your town teams and your county teams, what tended to happen is it those kind of games attracted scouts down. So so we'd have, you know, a, a typical schoolboy game. You could have Man City scout down, United scout. And, and sometimes scouts from further afield as well. I remember like, you know, Preston watching, Port Vale watching. So, so it was, um, it was a, a lad called George Knight who kind of was following... Um, some of the the schoolboy football I was playing in at the time, so he, he must have had responsibility for the Bolton area. And um, how it worked back then is you used to sort of get invited to go and train out in the United School of Excellence on a Monday night and a Thursday night. So that's kind of my first experiences of of getting involved there. And I used to sort of go down uh, on the ninety four bus from where I live, Little Lever, and. 
the training sessions used to be something like six till eight or seven till nine. And it was just getting, it was just getting that, that experiences of training in a professional club and, and, and playing it and playing with players who have, you know, are, of good ability and good standard. So, so I was doing okay on the, in the Monday night and Thursday night sessions. And it was after um, a county game uh, I was playing in for Greater Manchester uh, and a lad called Joe Brown uh, and, and another lad called Tony Collins, who sadly died recently. They approached me mum and dad after the game and said like, as well as the Monday and Thursdays, we'd like to invite Alan down for an extended trial over the, over the Christmas period. So I remember going down, I think it was about the 28th of December and I uh, stayed for a week. Bizarrely enough, Callum, I, I stayed over the new year. So we'd, we'd sort of, you'd be involved in practice matches and training sessions on the 28th, 29th, 30th. And I stayed over like 31st into New Year's Day. And uh, we went watching the first team. I think they played Newcastle at home. So all part of that week, I was kind of like, you know, involved in like, it's almost like full-time football, even though I was 14. And at the end of that trial, I did really well. And, you know, it was it was brilliant because you know, a few of the trial matches, you had Sir Alex watching, Eric Harrison, uh, Archie Knox, Brian Whitehouse, who was the reserve team manager then. Um, and even Samat Busby was down having a look at some of the juniors. So it was quite amazing, really. So at the end of that week, um, Joe Brown approached me and a, a couple of other players that... that that sort of uh, were in the local area at the time and played in my schoolboy side and said, you know, we'd like to sign you. We'd like to offer you schoolboy forms and um, and a two-year apprenticeship. So so that was kind of like how, how it panned out. So I signed for United uh, just shy of my, my 15th birthday. So I was about, uh, I think it was, I think it was early January in 1980, 1987. And in terms of United, when you go in there, a lot of the former players, as you'll know, in class of 92 included, have spoken about Eric Harrison and the impact that he had on their career. Did you work with Eric? And if so, what was he like to work with at that time? Yeah, Eric was um, a tough, uncompromising... Uh, I think he was a centre-half as a football player. And as a, as a coach, he was hard as nails, to be honest with you, Cal. And there was like, there was... You know, you, you, go, you go into the sort of the modern coaching styles within the, the modern day where you're hearing, you know, question and answer and, you know, almost like democratic style and, you know, me involving players in decision-making. There, there was no decision-making with Eric. It was like, he said it and you did it. Um, but for, from, a, from a resilience and from a toughness and from a, you know, bringing you on as, as, a, as a human being, I think he was brilliant, but... You know, the methods back then, the cultures were very, very harsh and very, very different to what they are now. Um, there was a lot of ritualistic stuff, a lot of, um, you know, doing things that maybe just crossing the borderlines in relation to sort of poor practices, really. And, you know, it, it was quite a harsh experience, but I think it gave me a good grounding. It gave me something to build on. And, you know, you look back on experiences and it's about finding meaning from them a lot of the time and what, what you can take away from those experiences. And though you don't know it at the time, it's almost doing you a favour because at the end of the day, kind of life is tough. It's a hard journey. And if you've kind of got, you know, this is maybe one of my critiques of the modern academy system. 
you know, it's almost everything's done for you in there. You know, you don't have to do anything. And and that's all well and good. And I, I understand about the lifestyle and the, the unbelievable careers that many can go on to have. But for a high percentage, a high majority, they're not going to get that. And if you've been used to this affluence and this opulence right throughout that journey, and then it's taken away from you at 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, it can be very, very difficult to move on from that and, and sort of, you know, try, try to find something else to do. And in terms of that apprenticeship, you mentioned the fact that academies are structured now so that the players can solely focus on their football. And if you're at an elite club, everything, as you say, is laid on, your food, everything that you could possibly want or need. In your apprenticeship, were you still doing jobs around the training ground, jobs at the stadium, for instance? Yeah, that, that's right, Council. So I went in sort of full time at 16 and um, we had, uh, you had different jobs to do. So mine was like, I think I was cleaning the, the we had a small gym at the cliff, uh, which was just downstairs uh, near, the, near the physio room. And so you'd have, you'd have a couple of apprentices who get the youth team dressing room. You'd have a couple of apprentices who get the resi team dressing room. A couple would get the um, the first team dressing room. I, I got the gym. Uh, some would get uh, other other chores to do, and, uh, and it was just making sure that your patch and, and your responsibility was done to the best of your standards. Because if it wasn't, you could end up in um, you know getting a punishment or a consequence for it, which, which could be like many you know like many things you. You might have to, um, you know, do some other jobs for a certain period of time. And, you know, in worst case scenarios, in, in some of the apprentices, it could end up, it sounds crazy this, but this is what happened. You might get daubed in boot polish. Uh, you, 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 might, you might get made to run naked laps around the cliff. It sounds bizarre and crazy, but, you know, that was kind of some of the culture back then. And, uh and it, 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 one thing it did, it made you grow up quickly and it made you make sure that, you know, you, you were doing your, your jobs to a, to a standard. You know, we had a couple of lads who got on the, they had to, they had to pump up all the balls in the morning for the, for the youths and the reses and the, and the first team to train with. And if any of the first team lads had said some of them balls were deflated or something or weren't pumped up properly, you know, there'd be consequences to that. And exactly the same with bibs and cones, you know, if you'd not... If you'd not set the bibs and cones out properly, or you'd left a certain amount of bibs out at the back at the at the um, at the cliff, because more, more often than not, we used to go down the road to Littleton Road to train. You know, you'd have Sir Alex and Archie moaning like, Where, "Where's the where's the cones this morning? Where's the bibs?" And you think, "Oh no, they've been left. They, they've not. We've not put them on the minibus, and it, it could be all hell to pay." So, so it's quite quite an interesting experience, Callum. A, a lot of the time. One of the things that made me laugh uh, was a, a quote that you had um, in the last couple of years where you talked about being announced on stage at, um, at an event where they compared you and, and Ryan Giggs. Um, what was it like playing with Ryan Giggs as he was coming through and what do you make of the career that he went on to have from that tough apprenticeship that you all had into being a player who played right through until 2013? Yeah, Ryan, I think he was one of these players. He was he was always like what you call in, in academia, like a screaming talent, you know, at 13, 14 years old. I think I think he was on the borders of City's books. You know, he, he was training, he was training at Platt Lane, and I think he was close to get, you know, getting offered terms there. And I think it was somebody who alerted 
Ryan to United. And uh, I remember the first time I saw Ryan, he was about 13, 14 at the time. And and we'd gone down to the club because I was kind of in a slightly older age group to Ryan. He, he was um, he was training in the group before. And I remember Eric Harrison just coming up to our group, so a group of under 15s and saying, "What? watch this kid over here. And he was only like a spindly, thin, small player, very, very good left foot. And Eric said, he's going to be some player, that lad. But I always recount it, Callum, so it didn't really mean a lot to me at the time because I was only under 15 myself. And you're looking at this lad and you're thinking, well, obviously Eric saw something in him and you know, Eric, Eric didn't get that wrong, did he? Like, what an unbelievable career, 963 appearances. Like, God knows how many Premier League titles, European Cups, FA Cups. He did it all, Ryan, didn't he? And, um, and just going back to your first point there, it was like a, a couple of years ago at an ex-player's dinner and uh, one one of me, uh, the lads who I sort of like get tickets for the dinner, he's a Man United nut called Pete Bolton. He was just introducing to me to a couple of the supporters and he said, oh, he said, this is this is Alan Tongi. He said he played with Ryan Giggs in the youth team. He said before the careers went in very different directions. So I thought, oh, cheers, Pete. Thanks for that. But, you know, like, un- unbelievable. Yeah, Ryan Giggs, like one of, one of the best Man United players of all time. And... Um, just a privilege to play with him for a, se- a few seasons at the start of his career. Absolutely. And and in terms of the team that you played for as a whole, I mean, obviously you've shared that brilliant anecdote, but the team you played in gets to the FA Youth Cup semi-final, which, which takes some doing. A lot of people talk about the Youth Cup and how many quality sides there were back then and particularly through the 90s as well. And even now, I suppose, when you look at the investment of the likes of Chelsea, Manchester City and even United as well, what was it like playing in that competition and playing with a group of players in your age group? Because, as I say, that competition is revered even to this day. Fantastic, um, very very nerve wracking, you know, because it, you know right through. I don't. I think one of the criticisms in the modern day. I mean, I, I don't think I don't like to say that United don't take it seriously. Of course they do, but there doesn't seem to be as much, you know, emphasis on on that. You know, I might be wrong in that statement, but. You know, coming back um, to mid eighties, eighty six when Sir Alex joined, I think that was part of his, his almost like his ambition and his, his kind of objectives was to try and get the youth sorted out. And you know, United have always tried to give youth opportunities right right through the core of their history. Uh, and you know, he has fantastic youth team players in the in the early eighties and mid eighties, such as you know, like Norman Whiteside, Mark Hughes, Clayton Blackmore, and then. I think when I just kind of started at the club, you had like lads like Lee Martin, uh, Tony Gill, uh, Russell Beardsmore, uh, Daniel Gray, and David Wilson. They were kind of breaking into the first team, so I, you know, always got always had good youth teams at United. So the first the first year that I got uh, opportunity to play in the FA Youth Cup, we did well. I managed to get to the quarter final. and what a bizarre experience! Probably one of the lowest experiences I've ever had in football, where. We, we played Brentford away um, and it, we, we, we made it 1-0 in the 86th minute. And I remember, you know, like it was it was a lad called Craig Lawton who scored the goal. And I turned away and I thought, I can't believe it. We've not played that well tonight, but we, we're going to do it. We're going to get through to the semis. And you talk about agony and ecstasy. So the ecstasy of doing that. And then within five minutes, like Brentford had scored twice and turned it around to win 2-1. And uh, after that game, uh, Sir Alex and Archie Knox come into the dressing room and uh, they weren't very, very happy at all because, like they said, like you'd, 
you're just throwing away an opportunity where you had it in like the um, the, the palm of your hand and it and it kind of slipped away. And I remember <laughs> Lee Sharp got um, a severe dressing down after that. I remember like, Archie telling him like you won't be involved in the first team squad like if you uh, anymore. And uh, <laughs> it was like crazy, but. You know, from from that, like Sharpie did all right. He was a good footballer, and um, but it just goes to show you um, how how fortunes can change. And the season after, again, we did really well. Uh, we progressed. We managed to get to the semi-finals. Played Spurs uh, at Old Trafford. At, sorry, at White Hart Lane, the first leg. Old Trafford, the second. Uh, first leg at White Hart Lane, not great. We we lost two 0 and it was a scrappy game. We didn't really play well at all, and. But like anything, United, you're always hoping that you can turn it round in the home leg. And and we got to Old Trafford, a decent crowd in Carlin, quite a few thousand watching. And we had, honestly, we had Spurs on toast. Absolutely hammered them. It's in the post, it's in the bar. Um, just con- consistent, constant pressure. I remember Giggsy going through a couple of times, one-on-one, just couldn't quite convert the chances. And it was just one of them games where it's not going to happen for you. We, we ended up drawing 1-1, so we, we went out 3-1 on aggregate. So I always laugh to this day and think, like, if Ryan had his shooting boots on that <laughs> night, we might not have heard of the class of 92 and all the ones coming up behind him. You know, your Beckhams, your Gary Nevilles, your Phil Nevilles, your Nicky Butts, Scullsy. You know, it, if we'd have won the Youth Cup, it might have been our crop who was getting all those chances and all that that these lads went on to, to get. But, you know, no complaints at the end of the day. You know, you look at the what they did and, and the, you know, the pressure that you've got to deal with and, and consistency of performance that you've got to find week in, week out. The scrutiny is incredible on you. You know, to do what they did is, 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 is just un- unbelievable. And in terms of being part of a successful United team at youth level, how did you react when you stepped up to train with the first team? Because you even make a squad as well, which I imagine is, is something that is a pinch yourself moment, really. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, the, the great thing back then is is like we were all housed in the same building, Callum at the Cliff. So you 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 were around all these great players um, on a regular basis. It wasn't disparate. You weren't in different parts of the building. So so on occasion, it, it wouldn't be unheard of to to have mass five sides on the Cliff that had involved a couple of first team players and a couple of reses and a couple of youth team players. And then in the morning, how it used to work was you used to get Archie Knox coming down into the dressing rooms and he'd say like, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Alan, Alan, can you come with the first team this morning? And you know, maybe with a couple of two or three other youth team players. And then, you know, you'd get your opportunity to go and do some training with them. And, you know, the one thing that I always remember is how difficult it was to to get a touch sometimes because you... <laughs> You like you're going in with these quality players, and it's like boom, 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 boom. The balls, the things are happening around you if you're not careful. But you know, as part of your learning and development, you know, you just look at these lads and you think, well, you know, I've I've got to I've got to improve my game and, and improve some of the aspects of, of my football to to try and get up to those standards, and not not just from a technical perspective, but from a psychological perspective, and. And from a fitness perspective as well, you know, and the, the fitness of these lads is like a polar part. And, it, and it's like you think the youth team and the reserves and the first team, it's like it's, it's huge. The difference is, is quite wide. You know, it, it, it is quite enormous. And I remember um, 
Brian Robson was coming back from um, from fitness. I think he'd had a problem with his hamstring, so he was just coming to training. And what we used to do at the end of the sessions, uh, the youth teams, nine times out of ten, you you do a bit of running to finish off. So we we had we used to do something, Callum, called a one. It was either a one to six or a one to eight. So you'd start on the dead ball line. And you'd kind of, you'd sprint to the halfway line. So that counts as one. And then you'd jog a half. And then you kind of three-quarter pace, you'd sprint to jog a half. Then you'd do three-quarter pace for three halves, jog a half. Three-quarter pace for four halves, jog a half. Right up to six or right up to eight. So at the end of the session, um, you know, it's, it's a real long burst of that one, really tough. So... Prior to that, Brian Robson had approached Eric Harrison and he said, can I come and join him with the running to get him fitness in at the end of your session? So he said, yeah, no problem. So we'd start off and, you know, one, jog, two, jog. So Robbo would be up there. Anyway, the heat starts getting turned up about your threes and your fours and your fives and your lungs are on fire. And I remember getting back to the dead ball. I think I'm doing quite well here. Like I'm up with the groups and then, you know, off you go on your last one. And then all of a sudden, it's like a top racehorse just appears on your shoulder, Robbo. And it's like that, you know, if you if you look at like some of the great, the great jockeys, they're like, they're holding on to the horse and like they start looking around at the others just to say, you know, are you here? And it, and it, it comes steaming past and I'm thinking to myself, my word, I've got such a long way to go yet. <laughs> And that, that, as you say, is, is just such an insight because so often, and you'll know this from your time working in football as well, as football fans, we see these icons on a Saturday and we think, wow, they're brilliant footballers. But what we sometimes forget is they have to put in that effort, as you've just said, with like Brian Robson did. And on the training pitch, sometimes I imagine you see even more determination from them because maybe they want to get out of a poor vein of form or they need to get back to a level of fitness that they're happy with. Absolutely. You know, you go right back into the 60s, Bill Shankly, he come out with this phrase, Callum, you train as you play, you know, and you see a lot of training in the modern day that's that's well monitored and it's measured and, you know, you've got to look at fatigue levels and all the science has come into modern football. But back then, you know, you heard Scolzi talking on BT a while ago. Like, it wouldn't be unheard of to have fights. You'd come off with like blood all over your shins, and it's just the way that—that's the way the culture was. Um, I remember an eighteen game at um, I think it was we played. It was either I think it was Crew at home, and um, and Eric we played Bolton Wanderers eighteen the week before. And Eric after that game said, "Oh, Robbo's going to be playing next week because he's coming back from fitness." Um, so I thought, oh, fantastic. So it's a great opportunity to have a look at, uh, at what he does, how he prepares, what he's like in the dressing room, you know, just, just, just sort of observing, observing the great man. So I thought, he's just going to take it easy, you know, for, for the first five or ten minutes, he'll get on the ball, he'll just, you know, work his way into the game, he'll, he'll weigh things up and he'll just get his little passes going. And I remember with him, like... He'd smash somebody on like the, on the touchline within like a few minutes. I'm thinking, dear me, if he's if he's, if this is an England international top player for United, United skipper, and he's doing this with a group of under 18s or a group of un, open A's like 18 players, you know, it, it just sums up the the fellow what he was because you're thinking, well, he's testing himself. There's no point just 
you know, just fiddling around a little bit and going soft because he, he knows that if he wants to get back into the first team, which, which he's going to do, he's got to be ready for that because it's a battle. So, uh, you know, it was like eye-opening stuff again. One of the things that's always really stood out to me from a Manchester United perspective is I recently spoke to, to Paul McGuinness and Neil Ryan and, and they both said the same thing, funnily enough. United always make sure that even if they can't produce a player who's going to play week in, week out for the Manchester United first team, that they'll give everyone the best possible chance to go on and have a professional career, whether that's the Championship or League Two or, or even the National League. That's something that they're passionate about. For you, how did it feel when Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson says to you, look, I don't think you're going to go on to be a first-team regular here at Manchester United, but I believe you can go out and be a regular at Robson's Exeter as you go on to. How, how did that process feel at the time? Yeah, it was tough. Um, dreams, isn't it? At the end of the day, you know, you, you've kind of... It's like a bittersweet symphony. You, you know, the verve... You, <laughs> You've got that so far and you've got into United's badge on your chest, which is unbelievable. Some great experiences, youth team, reses, you know, played in that first team friendly at So you, you kind of like, it's, you got so far, but not quite what, where you wanted to go. So it's just like, I suppose, a, 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 like a plethora of emotions, really, Callum. You've got, you've got disappointment, sadness, you've got, um, you know, you, you, you've got all this kind of sort of swirl going on. You're a bit lost, a bit confused. What's going to be coming next? So it, it was it was tough. And, you know, like any youngster, any player, any young pro who's kind of getting moved on. And, and I think what was probably most hardest for myself is like, I was a United fan. So it's like, it's almost like you, it's, a, it's a relationship that you're having with the club that's being severed. Or, or, you know, it's not worked out. So it's like a double whammy. You know, if I had to come into United as as maybe, um, you know, I'd followed somebody else in my youth, I'd been like a Liverpool fan or a Man City fan, maybe it might not have impacted. But because you've you've grown up with your dad and he's been talking about the Busby Babes and Bestie and Law and Charlton and you've watched cup finals with your dad, you know, 77, beat Liverpool, 79, tragic loss to Arsenal, 83, uh, beat Brighton, 85, beat Everton, coming through this kind of, you know, this enjoyable experience and then to sort of like get so far to 19 and you can't quite get that next step. It, it, it was really sad and, and really disappointing for a spell, but like anything else, it's, you know, you, you take these disappointments and it's a case of having to to think about, you know, what, what you can do next and how you can move on best. And, you know, that was the, uh, that was the, the sad thing. So, so I suppose like back then as well, it was always different because there's a lot of, obviously in the modern football, you've got agents now. So you probably know, you'd have an idea maybe January, February, if your contract's going to get renewed or what you, if you're going to get offered anything. Whereas back then, I think it was about May, I got told. So it's like re- right near the end of the season. And uh, it was a, it was a strange one, really, because yeah, so Alex had come watching the A-team at um, Platte Lane. We were chasing the, the Lancashire League title down. And we it was in the it was we had four games in the last week to try and to try and pip City. Um, we, we played, I think it was Morecambe Reserves, Burnley. Uh, another game on the Thursday night, I can't remember. And then City was like the sort of all or nothing game on the Saturday morning. 
And I was marking a lad called Jason Beckford, and he was just kind of breaking into City's team at the time. Very, very good player, very good winger. I mean, I'd, I'd had a decent game against him. And then after the game, like Sir Alex would like said, oh, you were fantastic today, Tom. You've been absolutely brilliant. Um, unbelievable performance. That, that Beckford out there, he's, he's a first-team player, really, for City. Uh, he's not really had a kick today, so he said, unbelievable. And then two days later, he's called me in his office and said, we're going to be moving you on. So you're like, you're thinking, this sounds good with the praise. You've got a chance of a contract renewal. And then, oh, no, we, we, we're going we're gonna to sort of, um, we're going to have to move you on. So it's like... Again, these ups and downs in football that, that that come to your door is surreal sometimes and um, and difficult to comprehend. So, so yeah, so that was it, Callum. It's just a case of like you know disappointment, but got to move forwards, and you you know you can't harbour you can't harbour on stuff for for, for long. But um, it, it was a tough time. There's there's no denying that. Given your love of United, how did you feel initially when you joined Exeter? Was it was it strange at all because you'd been so ingrained in United that it was a it was a completely fresh start and and you're moving to an area of the country that, with no disrespect, is a wee bit out of the way compared to what you were used to. Yeah, a, a culture shock. You know, Man United, a massive, global, huge, loads of people interested in the club. Exeter, you know, I've said this to a couple of Exeter City fans and a couple of podcasts I've done for them where. You know, without Sandy Root, I, I never heard of it. I didn't know where Exeter was. I, I, I wasn't sure where, you know, <laughs> where, where to go. I remember my dad dra- drawing a map for me, like M6, M5, <laughs> about, uh, I think, I think a 300-mile trip or something like that. Oh, I've never, never heard of it. Um, so, so from a culture perspective, you know, at United, you had, you know, you got your boots, you had all your training kits sort of laid out for you. Uh, Exeter, you had to, you had to, um, you had to clean your own stuff. Uh, no, no canteen, uh, a small weights gym that the equipment weren't the best in there. So, but you know, I, I'm I'm quite a grounded person. I think I'm working class background. So those things, like I, I didn't have any ego like that, Cal. I, I, I'm not like that as a person. So, and um, what it, what tra- what it transpired to be was some of the best parts of my life. I really, really enjoyed it in Exeter. Uh, got again, got the chance to to get my career moving again. Played with some good players, and um, it, I had a, I had a great a great few years down there. Really, really enjoyed it. I was just about to say. I mean, obviously, we will come to your career ending early, but I always think it's very important to for you, especially you know this better than me, to remember the years that you had there because you're still very highly regarded by the fans, which to me shows you made an impact on that football club. Yeah, I mean, it, I played in a couple of decent games. I think one one of the games that stands out was like the local derby against Plymouth Argyle. And I think I think if you can do something in your club's history where you've contributed or you've had a good results, like Man United, City, Everton, Liverpool, uh, Portsmouth, Southampton, um, you know, the, like the Yorkshire derbies, the Midlands derbies, if you contribute in one of those, I think you get you know, a little bit of kind of like thumbs up sort of thing. So, so I'd done really well in like um, in one of the Plymouth games and I, I put a you know, decent crossing for the first goal and I managed to have a, you know, got man of the match. And I think, I think that sort of like just gives you that little bit of credibility sort of thing. So, and uh, yeah, it was good. I played in some decent, some decent games and that, and, you know, like I say, just managing to get my career moving and, uh, and then the the second kind of disappointing uh, hurdle appeared, and uh, you know I, I ended up with a serious injury to my back, 
Um, you saw it again, just just another a really really tough thing to deal with and a, and a really tough time. In terms of your injury, and, and I don't want to take you down a path if you don't want to talk about it, so, so feel free. But yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it, it was a it's a very serious injury. It was a, a very serious spinal injury. You you just earlier on you talked about how much you loved United, how much you wanted to be a footballer. You're playing for Exeter. You, you mentioned that memory against Argyle. There's clearly happy memories there, but it's taken away from you, and it's in a heartbreaking fashion. And the, the the question I want to ask you, and I know it is quite personal, but how did you cope with that mentally and physically for the couple of years afterwards? Because, as I say, I'm a massive football fan, and I would give I would give my right my right arm to play for Man United or Exeter or any professional club for just five minutes. You managed to get yourself into a position where you were playing regularly, you were highly regarded, and it's all taken away so soon before it's really started in your head as to where you want to get to again. Yeah, I always look at it. It's like if the best way to kind of explain it, Callum, is like I just feel as though it's potential, not realised. If that makes sense, um, you know, I know a lot of players who come through football and they and they might not get to the levels that they that they have aspired to or they've expected to get to. So I, I always look at it like it's just sad that. You know, your kind of career's finished at 24 or something, and you know it's it's like all these years that you could have done something, you might have climbed back up the leagues again, and so that's the kind of the first disappointment, and I think the second one is almost coming out of football is is really tough because it's something that you've known for a long time, you know you've been playing in the garden since you were four or five year old, and then you get to 22, you have a serious spine problem, you. You try and get your rehabilitation done, and then you're out the game at 24. It's replacing the kind of the the uniqueness of the sport that that I found very difficult. So it's almost like your future that you're seeing is not there anymore. So you almost, you know, you, you almost fall into this kind of this loss, this this space that's that's really challenging and. And, you, you know, I think I went into sort of denial for quite a long time. I couldn't accept I wasn't playing anymore. You end up spending more time down the pub than you should do. You know, you're getting into bad habits, like you're gambling quite a lot. Uh, and it's just it's just that, like, it's just that sort of, um, you don't know who you are. You've, you've just, your identity that you had as a football player has been obliterated. But then you've not got another... Um, trade or another job to go and do. Um, I thought Exeter football in the community scheme give us a few coaching hours, but the pro- the problem with that is it was very seasonal, so you'd be working over the half ta- half term with a group, but then nothing then till Easter, and then doing a bit of coaching then, and then nothing then till maybe the summer holidays. So it, you know, it, it was kind of brilliant, and I, and I, I kind of you know. I, the lad who gave me those hours, Eamon Dole, and he's sadly not with us anymore. I, I, I you know, I thank Eamon so much for that, but I needed to consider something else, and that was the difficulty. It was plugging the gap from coming out of football to moving on properly, and it took me a few years to do that. I think I almost tried to fill that space with quick fixes. You know, doing I did um, a lot of driving work, van driving, multi-drop, uh, working, working in a warehouse for a bit, 
worked with the Royal Mail for a bit, worked for a company called TNT for a bit. Um, so picking up work, but not really, I think, finding myself again, if that makes sense. So probably the best decision I made in my life was probably I got to 28 years old and I decided to go back to university and do a degree in sports science. And I think I think that was probably the start of the rebuild. If I'd have had more uh, people talking to me and giving me advice at maybe 24, I might have come to that decision quicker. But I just kind of like... Just went went. I just got lost, and I just, I just weren't sure what to do uh, next. So so since going back to uni, I've done like my degree in sports science, and I did a teacher training year straight away. So it's just I, I needed to get that like almost like that qualification in something else because the fear now that I had from football and the loss that I had from football, it almost like gives you this kind of like worry that things can get taken away again. So while you're in, while you're at the mercy of kind of um, going through series of jobs, I needed to get something more solid. So like training and getting a qualification as a teacher, a lecturer, I think that was really, really important as part of my moving forwards and, and trying to push my life on again. So from that, yeah, I've done teacher training. I got a master's degree in philosophy. So I just just engaging with my education and learning and thinking and trying to apply that learning and knowledge back into where I've come from and and utilizing those experiences of difficulty and and change in order to try and do some research on maybe what clubs could do better in their support of young people or young players, young pros. With that academic element of your life and how important it has been for you and the opportunities that you've had through that after football how important is it therefore that clubs and anyone associated I suppose in any real elite sport pushes academia or a trade some some level of of taught skill or knowledge to people trying to enter any field in sport so that if they don't succeed, that there is another option for them. Because as you've mentioned, when you leave Exeter, you have a couple of years where you're maybe a rabbit caught in the headlights of what they do next and it's unsettling. So how vital is it in your opinion, based on your experience, that, that clubs in sport in general recognise that and make sure that they build that into what they're doing? Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's very important. Also, some of the academic research is looking at things like dual careers now, but not not necessarily within the domain of pro football. Although the research will probably get in there sooner or later, or or certainly football clubs need to to take that on board. But um, I just think it broadens you as a person. You know, you, you don't have to be academic, Callum. It could be you might learn to play a musical instrument, or learn a language, or do your coaching awards and you know, just, just something that's pinned around you um, as opposed to, you know, becoming a footballer. You know, football is a brilliant life. It's a great life. It's, but it can be very fragile as well. Um, you know, if you, if you get to 35, you've done fantastic. If you can get a full and long career out of the game, brilliant. And that's what everybody wants. But I always look at the percentages you know, it's only a tiny percentage of players who manage to get those fulfilled, almost lucrative, exclusive careers behind them. There's 
there's a lot, a lot of players who don't get that. And, and you know, you're almost at the mercy what one tackle could ruin it, one, one you know, nasty incident we've seen over the years with plenty of players. Um, you know, Fabrice Muamba at Bolton. Um, I think I think there was a, the lad at um, was it Hull City? Is it Ryan Mason got a bad head injury? Yeah, he, he clashed heads and he had to have a lot of surgery. And and you're at, you're at the mercy in football of of those sort of things and and not not just injury. There's there's all other components as well. You you might you might get deselected and released at a certain stage of your life of your football career. You know you might get moved on by a manager. You might not get on with the manager who's just arrived at the club. You might not get on with some of the teammates in the dressing room. So, so there's all different aspects that I feel that by doing other things and almost broadening yourself as a player, as a person, you know, it's a win-win. And then hopefully, you know, as, as you come to the end of your career or whenever you're moving forwards um, from your football experiences, you hopefully will have a little bit more clarity and a little bit more light at the end of the tunnel instead of maybe facing a dark one. Um, like look at myself as an example, played in United's under 18s at 15, played in the reserves at 16, played in the first team friendly at Histon 17, captain England under 20s at 17, 19 made me first team debut for Exeter, scored for Exeter, uh, 22, I was out of football, 24 gone. Um, having to look for something else to do, so it, I think I think that's probably, um, I think what clubs and what stakeholders, PFA uh, people around the game are getting better at. But it's like oh, it's like anything else, Calm. You can always improve. You can always do things better. But I think from a from an, an experiential perspective and from an experienced perspective and from an empirical perspective, I'd always sort of sort of say to players, you know it. Yeah, love your football, of course, but love your whole life as well. What's going on around that? You know, lots of the top lads, they'll, they'll set up their own foundations and charity charity arms to organisations to support them in work in the community. Brilliant. It gives them another, something else along away from football. You know, go, and, go and coach some youngsters, go and work with disabled groups in the community, go and, go and do a little bit of coaching. I mean, it just broadens you as a person. And, and brings you on as a person. I think I think that's that's critically important. It just it just flattens the ego a little bit of a player because egos can sometimes run amok. You know they can they can get out of control, and it, in doing little things like that, it just it just keeps you grounded and keeps you your feet on the floor. And um, I think I think that's that's really important aspect. As well as um, teaching and lecturing, which you, which you do at USAFB among others. You're still commentating regularly for United games and for Exeter games. How much enjoyment do you get out of going to, to, to Old Trafford and also down to Exeter? And there's a second part to that question. How strange has it been for you, considering there are no fans and grounds, which you, you and I, or everyone's been so used to for many years? Yeah, absolutely. So so the radio stuff really come out of nowhere. Um, I think it was a, f- a few years ago now. Bill Rice, who's the um, uh, head of sport at, uh, at BBC Radio Manchester, he dropped us a message. I think it was via on social media, and he said, "Do you want to come on this program called Red Wednesday?" And what it was, it was just a program on a Wednesday night, six till seven, uh, just talk about United for an hour. What's happening? How they're doing in Europe? How they're doing in the league? What the players are doing? Like who's who's in form? 
brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Like anything else, Callum, you know, very nervous when you first you first go on there. It's, it's different. You know, I've not talked on the radio before, but but I think with experience, you get better at that. And then, you know, I'd, I'd done that for a few years on occasions, which was brilliant. Um, and then it was, um, I think I was driving home from, um, from work and uh, Bill Rice had messaged me and he said that, um, he said someone from Exeter has been on Radio Devon. Um, Exeter are playing Macclesfield uh, over this next week or so. And they was looking, if they, asking if I knew anyone in the area who could maybe jump on as a summariser. So he said, I thought of you, because obviously, you know, you went to Exeter after United. So I said, oh, brilliant. So I, I spoke to a lad called Alan Richardson at BBC Radio Devon. And um, for the last couple of years now, two or three years, I've been doing um, work for, for, for them when Exeter come up into the north, which is, you know, like this season, um, obviously it's been curtailed quite a lot, but there's like the Salford City, uh, Scunthorpe, Port Vale, Walsall, Oldham Athletic, Grimsby. You know, they're all, they're all in, uh, there's quite a lot of clubs within a domain, Barrow, uh, Harrogate, Bolton Wanderers. So, so it's, been, it's been a bit curtailed this season, but hopefully early April, um, I've got a couple of games that if everything goes all right, I've been given the Port Vale game on the second and the Barrow game on the third team. So I'll, I'll go and do the summary work on that for the for, for Radio Devon. So, yeah, so really enjoy it. Um, something a bit different, something that that you never really think about until you get involved with it. You know, I've never really thought about the media side, but it's just, again, it's just something to try, Callum. I mean, I, I was lucky enough a couple of, a few weeks ago to, to get the summary work for, the FA Cup game, Man United v Watford at Old Trafford. And I worked with a lad called Liam Bradford, Liam, fantastic commentator. And, you know, that that was a great experience as well. And and just coming back to your second part of your question, yeah, very, very strange not seeing, it's almost like ghost towns when, you, when you're walking around the grounds. I remember right at the start of the season when, when Exeter come up to Salford and all the shutters are down on the kiosks, there's no... Fast food, you know, they'd be all be buzzing on a match day, wouldn't they? With, with fans getting the burgers and the pies, you know, part of the, the culture of going watching the game. And and it was really sad. It, it really hit home how really sad it was. And and I'm just hoping and praying now that over this next period, the fans can get back into grounds and we can we can start moving again. Because, you know, fans are everything, aren't they? They, they make the atmosphere you know, it's all about the singing and the culture and the day and, you know, and we, we need that. And the players are probably thinking the same as well, Callum. They want them back in. Um, I must have been surreal experiences over this last nine months or so playing behind closed doors. And, you know, it, it must be tough for players because we, we've seen some really random results, haven't we? So, um, so yeah, so fingers crossed that, that can start happening over this next two, three, four months or so. Absolutely, and just a few quick fire questions before you go. And thanks for being so generous with your time. Um, no problem. Best players you played with in your career at Exeter and United? Yeah, so so your Man United definitely Brian Robson. Again, you, you could probably talk. <laughs> the thing, the thing, the great thing with United, Callum, is it like it's just like somebody saying like, "What's your best eleven of all time?" You you could probably pick 10, 11, 12 best elevens <laughs> and still have like a quality team. So, yeah, so off the top of my head, um, 
Brian Robson, Norman Whiteside, class, uh, Giggsy, brilliant, Stevie Bruce, Gordon Strachan, Paul McGrath, uh, Dennis Irwin, Andre Kanchelskis, you know, unbelievable footballers, um, Exeter, some some good lads. I played with something like uh, previous England internationals that were from in the 80s. Stevie Williams was a top player. Stevie Moran, great centre forward. Ronnie Jepson. Um, I think I think Ronnie's still involved. I think he's at Cardiff under under um, um, is it Cardiff? Is it, where's Where's Neil Warnock at at the moment? Ronnie follows Neil Warnock. Uh, where sorry Middlesbrough Middlesbrough so I, th- I think Ronnie Ronnie's like coaching there still he was a good footballer um, yeah like, lads Johnny Hodge good good little winger Kev Miller goalkeeper Scotty Eiley was a top little right back he went on to have a decent career I mentioned me mate Dave Cooper as well left full back he was a tough lad he had a bad injury to uh, unfortunately had his legs shattered in, in a couple of places and that, that was really sad so yeah, so just off the top of my head like that, they were like some of the standout players for um, for Exeter City. So so yeah, in, in that respect, you know, very very fortunate, very lucky to to be around these lads and and play with these lads. And um, you know, I, I, I count myself even for a short amount of time very fortunate. Toughest opponents. Oh yeah, again, <laughs> some some toughers over the years. Like Steve McManaman was a top player. He, he always give, give me a bit of uh, difficult times, like playing in like some of the the Liverpool junior teams and the, the Liverpool um, reserve sides at the time. Uh, another tough opponent was a lad called Jason Wilcox. He, I think he's big in at City's youth development um, operation at the moment. Jason was a good player, uh, very, very quick and direct winger. But it's amazing, Carl, when you look back and some of the players that you played against, like you forget quite a lot and you look down some of the old resi team sheets, like Leeds, like David Batty, Peter Beagrie at Everton. Uh, we're, all, we're all standout players. And, and even going back into the real youth days where United used to play in tournaments, like some of the players that you wouldn't believe that stand out um, in some of the, the, t- the team programmes, like some of the AC Milan players who went to get who got like European Cup winners? But I think Costa Curter played in like the the junior size, and it's when you look back at these, you think it's incredible that you won't have a clue who you're playing against. But you look at some of the names in the program, and you think, wow, they were they went on to do like some unbelievable things in football. So, so yeah, some uh, some some really nice stuff there. And in terms of um, <clears throat> players from both clubs, again, who would you say are maybe some of the the most underrated players? Maybe players that like yourself, maybe had an injury and didn't have the career or the longevity that they'd hoped for, or or just maybe players that had a steady career but maybe aren't talked about as often as they maybe should be? Yeah, I think I think from a United perspective, I, I always say Clayton Blackmore, Callum, for United, because Clayton was a top player. And um, I think he played, if my memory serves me right, in United's first team, he's wore every jersey apart from, the, I think, apart from the goalkeeping one. So he's played like two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. He's had that shirt on um, for throughout his career. So incredible. Clayton was always very underrated, a very good passer, very, very good control. Uh, he could score some cracking goal. He had a great shot on him, Clayton. So so I think Clayton flies under the radar a little bit. Um you know, Dennis Irwin was unbelievable. I think Dennis is like at the top of a lot of people's listing, like sort of like great elevens, but 
because Dennis was only a quiet lad and he didn't really say a lot, I think sometimes he flies under radars as well. But I think Sir Alex like rated uh, Dennis very, very highly. He used to say like he'd give me eight or nine out of ten every week. And you know, we talk about consistency of footballers. I think they're so important, Callum, in your team. You know, we, we need these world beaters, we need these these mavericks, these geniuses who can turn it on and, and get you on the edge of your seat. Of course we do. But we need the lads behind that who are kind of like solid every week, who, who are a really good part of a team. And and I think Dennis Irwin was kind of like one of the players that, that fits into that. And probably one of the saddest ones was Ollie Kay's, uh, A.D. Doherty. You know, uh, that was tragic. Uh, A.D. was kind of like rated on a, on a par with Ryan Giggs as a youth player. And he was just on the cusp of the first team. I think he went travelling with them a few times. You know, that, that's what they used to do back then. They used to invite the youngsters just to just to carry the skips and, you know, help out with some bits and pieces and just to be around a match day. And he was getting close to it, Aidy, and unfortunately he had like a bad injury to his knee, his, like his, um, his cruciate ligament and his rehabilitation was, was a challenge and he didn't quite get back because he was quite an explosive player like Ryan. He didn't quite get that level of speed back and, Unfortunately, he got deselected and moved on at a young age, and you know, and it just went on a sort of a down, a bit of a down spiral from then, and ended, ended up in tragedy. He lost his life very young. Uh, I think it was just short of his, of his um, I think it was average, I think it was twenty seventh birthday, um, which was tragic. And, and that, again, you talk about unfulfilled potential. You know that that's one that that's, that's a really sad tale. So so for every. Uh, genius and brilliant footballer who's had a great career there's always like a bit of sadness like tucked around that as well absolutely and just just on that to finish the last question i've got for you based on your experience in football and out with football as well what advice would you give to young people trying to make their way in the football industry as a player or in another role today well, it's, it's, it's probably advice that you've probably heard quite a lot and quite a lot of players that probably say the same thing and that's just to enjoy it, to give it your all, um, to dedicate yourself, you know, that's that's important. Um, to, to make sure that you're doing the right things, we're doing, doing the right things well, you know, finding that consistency in your game. But kind of as a sidearm to that, I'd also like to add that to maybe be courageous enough to open up if things are not going so well as well and not to bury things. You know, football cultures, football environments can be quite ruthless places and, and you can get quite lost in there if you're not careful. And I think I think it's finding that that strength of character to to maybe speak out, Callum, if you're struggling a little bit. Don't bury things. Don't think, don't pretend that everything's all right when it's not. Because what ha- what can happen to you is you don't you don't act on something and it gets hidden and, and it goes on and it goes on and that can like manifest itself into a, like a mental health problem and you and you can sort of if you're not careful you can end up with with depression or you can end up with um, you know finding yourself in low mood states because you're not you're not being yourself, you're not, you're not speaking your truth. So I think that's probably a little bit of a sidearm advice in there. I think that can be quite difficult sometimes because it's quite daunting, you know, to maybe go and knock on somebody's door or, or speak to somebody in confidentiality. But I think, I think going forwards, I think football's got to embrace that a lot more and offer players the opportunity to do that. 
So that that'd kind of be me, me sort of my main advice. And also to develop yourself, you know, from the experiences. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. There's enough time to do other things. You know, even if it's like I say, coaching juniors, coaching youngsters, doing your coaching awards, doing courses, you know, and it, it can be that can be that can be in relation to football as well. So you might you might you might get involved with like a performance analysis course or fitness and conditioning or nutrition. There's all little things you can learn and develop and get better at. You know, most players, pro players, they go in training um, 10 o'clock, half 10. They're done for 12, half 12. You know, there's enough time in the afternoon to maybe do things, something else. You know, a lot, a lot of players I know have got family commitments, but there's all different spectrums, you know, like as Rio Ferdinand's done one matter, Vincent Company, you know, they've gone on to do like further qualifications and like Rio's got like his his brand and his, his kind of his businesses and it just... It just puts something else around you. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying don't dedicate yourself to the sport. Of course you do. But it's always useful to, to have that, those extra aspects and those extra components to your identity as well to make you that, almost like that, that, broad, that, that broad identity. So when challenges are, are sort of thrown into your path, you, you may be like a little bit better equipped to, to deal with them. Brilliant. Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Callum. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, you know, really, really enjoyed it, and and it's always good to to share and reflect and think about some of your some of your tales and your journey as well. And uh, you know, you know, th thanks so much for for for, for doing that. So we'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song. They'll be filled with song. Dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And her shells will all be open They'll be filled with song no.